idiotic hat and ready to roll. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J, Sue L and Audrey N. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, you can contact either myself or any of the co-hosts and you can make this contact by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows, that will not be recorded. And we will put a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function. We ask that if you could please keep your microphones on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, you're driving, you're eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason, please do disconnect your camera. We will also ask that if you can refrain from making use of the chat function to message other attendees privately, just so we can all be present with each other today in today's workshop. So we will disable the chat function until 10 minutes before the Q&A. So we will now turn over the meeting to Harlan G in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria, and thank you so much for your service. Thank you to everybody who does service to make this possible. These recordings get listened to by thousands of people over time. I neither post them nor do I maintain that website. There's a lot of people that are so involved with this besides me that it's mind boggling. And I just wanna thank each and every one of you who has anything to do with this. Um, next week, I'm gonna be joining you by phone from Nashville, Tennessee. And I've never done Zoom by phone before, so I'm gonna practice this week. I'm going to a wedding in Nashville, but that won't, that won't change anything. I'll just do this from there on my phone. And I, I think it'll be just fine because I see people all the time coming in here by phone and it seems to work just fine. Anyhow, um, I hope, I say this all the time, I hope it's as absolutely stunning wherever you are as it is here in Scottsdale, Arizona this morning. It is 84 degrees right now. The humidity is minuscule, it's shoe size, and the sky is just clear and beautiful. And the nearest cloud is somewhere out over California or New Mexico. There isn't a cloud in sight. And it's just breathtaking here in Arizona this morning. I hope you're enjoying something beautiful too. We have been in the chapter, We Agnostics, and we have been talking about the second step. This is the chapter that is devoted to step two. And in the second step, we find that it says, came to believe that a power greater than, my, than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And it came to believe means to me that it is going to be a lifetime process of developing and enhancing a faith that we're going to be talking about today. And by the way, if you're keeping score at home, when we start, we're going to start on page 53 with the paragraph Logic is great stuff. Logic is great stuff. And that's where we're going to start on page 53. Um, came to believe that a power greater than myself. Notice it doesn't say that we have to believe in any particular brand or any particular way. We just have to come to believe that there is a power greater than myself that can do what? That can restore me to sanity. And notice it does not say came to believe that a power greater than myself could make me abstinent or make me sober. It doesn't say that. It says restore me to sanity. And the reason that it's beautiful that it says sanity is sanity is so much more open-ended than is abstinence or sobriety. Sobriety is very limited, but sanity is not limited. And when I say that, what I mean is, is the disease does not leave you where it finds you. What does that mean when I say the disease does not leave you where it finds you? The disease comes into your life. For most of us, it comes in during our infancy or very early childhood. 
And it doesn't just affect what we eat or what we don't eat. It doesn't just affect the fact that we have a physical allergy to certain foods and that we have a mind that focuses in on that ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating those foods. That's a that's a rudimentary beginning. What it also does is it comes into our lives and it creates a tremendous amount of self-loathing. And the self-loathing, the self-hatred comes because we make promises to ourselves, we make promises to others that we're not gonna eat this way anymore. And we keep going back on our promise hundreds and hundreds of times. And we look at the world around us and we see people, <clears throat> that have a benign relationship with food. They have a seemingly much easier time relating to the world because we have a constant, constant habit of comparing our insecure, broken insides with their together, wonderful, solid, strong looking outsides. And we keep comparing. And the shortest distance between me and severe unhappiness is through the shortcut of comparison. Comparison will always make me unhappy. It will make you seem more fortunate. You seem smarter. You seem better. You seem more adjusted. And I the lesser and you the greater or I will compare and find that I'm the greater and you're the lesser. And what it does not do in our disease is allow us the luxury of the promise of step five. Five and nine are the great emancipators. We're gonna talk a lot about that when we get to five and nine, but just to touch on it right now, we can now look the world in the eye and sanity allows me to do that. It allows me to look the world in the eye. And that's what it does. So we have a situation where sanity becomes so much more important than does mere sobriety or abstinence. And then the disease does not leave you where it finds you. Besides self-loathing, what it does is it creates within us a almost surrealistic idea of, of what the world around us is about. We, we have a tendency to overthink. We have a tendency to catastrophize. We have that cognitive, we have that cognitive habit of catastrophizing things. Most of us do. Not all of us. It's not consistent with a hundred percent of us, but I've seen it in enough of us to know that it is definitely a characteristic. We have fear. We have fear of getting caught eating. We have fear of getting seen eating. We have fear of other people. Now, a lot of people have that. A lot of people have anger. A lot of people have fear. But in our minds, in our brains, we are wired to understand that in a Chips Ahoy cookie or an Oreo, or I was just informed 10 minutes ago, now there's a purple M&M. I better throw my recovery away and eat purple M&Ms because Lord knows I've never had M&Ms with that food coloring in them before. So I'm gonna, gonna crap my recovery away and I'm going to go get purple M&Ms, darn it. No, I'm not. But the bottom line is we have a relationship with ourselves and a relationship with others that demands that we eat food against our will to the point of destruction because the world around us gets less intimidating, less scary, more controllable, and easier to live in in the first 10 seconds after I would consume a purple M&M. And that purple M&M will do something for me, not to me, for me, that it does not do for the normal temperate eater that doesn't have this disease. And what food does for me, for me, is to give me an instant change in my perception of reality. I'm going to say that again. Food does for me 
something that it does not do for the normal eater. It gives me an instant change in my perception of reality. I had two instances this week, two of them, where alcoholics that I knew vaguely, but I knew their friends better, unfortunately took their own life after years of being dry. They were not in recovery. They were not working the steps. They were dry. And in two separate unrelated instances, took their lives. Alcoholics kill themselves almost always in sobriety because when they're drunk, when we're eating, the world is a beautiful place. For the first nine seconds that that food is in my mouth, everything is beautiful. Everything is glorious. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy comes from this black and white, almost sepia, but this black and white Kansas. And she goes to Oz. And when she gets to Oz, everything is in technicolor. Everything is in this enhanced color. Everything is beautiful. Everything is just realistically beautiful and in technicolor. And that's what happens in my mind when I eat Chips Ahoy cookies or I eat fried egg rolls, or if I'm in Chicago, uh, I go to Wolfie's or Flukies and Flukies not there anymore. I go to Wolfie's or I get the, the fries where they're eating out the, the bag that the grease is going in the bag uh, and, and, and the hot dogs and the hamburgers, it's just greasy garbage. But in my mind, it's like the best thing ever because it's just, it sets my brain afire with this unrealistic uh, perception of reality that everything is okay. But about 10 seconds into this, everything is not okay. And the horror, the dread is is upon me again. Now, I mentioned that the disease does not just leave you where it finds you. It picks you up and takes you besides the eating and the not eating. It takes you to a place that is nightmarish. It takes you to hell. And that's what drives us into these rooms is we can't live that way anymore. And for the first little while that we come here, people tell us, you've got to put the food down. You've got to put the food down and you'll feel better. Yeah. When I put the food down, let me tell you something. I felt a lot better. I felt anger better. I felt fear better. I felt crushes on girls better. I felt like killing myself better. I felt like killing you better. And the bottom line is I couldn't stand the way I felt when I was not eating. And it was horrible. And that horrible nightmarish abstinence, that horrible uh, sobriety, if you will, just to make it easier to understand. I had to have the food because the food was doing for me what nothing else did. But what we find is the steps will do for me slowly what the food did for me instantly with none of the, of the devastating, death-defying, health-defying side effects. And the recovery does not leave you where it finds you. It doesn't just make it so that you're not, you don't want to compulsively overeat anymore. You don't want to practice bulimia anymore. You don't want to starve yourself anymore. It doesn't just do that. It repairs things in my life. Now, this takes years. This doesn't happen in five minutes. If you're new and you're saying, how come that's not happening to me? You got to keep going. You got to keep recovering. This is not something that happens in five minutes or five years or 10 years or 15 years. This is stuff that happens over long periods of time, but you start getting repaired in areas that you did not even know were broken. I have the ability today to be who I am. I have the ability today to say yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no. I have the ability to express myself without fear. 
I don't just say to somebody, hey, you really look ugly today or hey, you're stupid. I don't say stuff like that. No, but I have the ability to say, hey, I'm cold. Hey, I'm hot. Hey, I like this. Hey, I don't like that. Whereas before I never had that ability. I was so scared of the people around me in the world that I didn't dare express myself. Now I can. Now I can live free. Now I can be the person that God intended me to be all along. And it feels really good. So there's a lot more to this than just abstinence or sobriety. And we're we should be very grateful that the wording of the steps bears out the truth of the recovery, bears out the real truth that we do come to believe that there is a power greater than myself that does not just restore me to abstinence, does not just restore me to sobriety, but restores me to sanity. So sanity is open-ended and large and alive. And abstinence and sobriety are very limited. The ceiling on these things is extremely, extremely low. And the ceiling on sanity doesn't exist. It's an open air stadium because there's just no end to the improvement that we're going to have in our lives as the result of a diligent effort to keep working these steps over and over and over that in 10 we continue in 11 we improve and in 12 we practice 10 11 12 10 11 12 you're not at 10 11 and 12 yet get there quickly get there as quickly as you can because nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics that comes at step 12 that's why we get there as quickly as we can and we don't dilly dally let's go to page 53 Page 53, logic is great stuff. We liked it. We still like it. It is not by chance that we were given the power to reason. So when we talk about this God of reason or this logic or common sense, we have to remember something. We have been told in this book, we have been told in this program that no human power could have relieved our compulsion. We are told at the end of chapter three that we have an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, I've never had a spiritual experience. I've never had a spiritual experience. I've had a spiritual awakening, but my spiritual awakening is very slow in developing. And I have what's called the educational variety. And I still deepen my relationship with God all the time. I still deepen that because I work at it every single day, but we like logic. And one of the things that Bill Wilson struggled with when Ebby came to him in November of 1934, and Ebby was sober and Bill was drunk, but one of the things that Bill Wilson struggled with was he was looking for a more logical, more science-based solution to his alcoholism. And the guy based, the religion based, although it's not really religion, Ebby says, I've got religion, which really isn't accurate. It's a spiritual experience. It's not a religious experience. You can be any religion you want. You can be no religion. You can be eight religions. You can be whatever religion you want, but it is going to take a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps to in fact make any difference in your desire to kill yourself with either food or starvation. And without that spiritual awakening, you will not recover. It is not going to happen because only a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps is going to substitute for that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating those purple M&Ms or whatever it is you liked to binge on. And I don't really have any thing that is of this earth that I could point to and say, yes, 
This is a human being. Yes, this is money. Yes, this is whatever it is. And say it made any difference at all whatsoever in my ability to stay out of the food. It was only by God's grace and mercy. It is only by God's grace and mercy that I am able to stay out of the food one day at a time. Let's continue. <clears throat> to examine the evidence of our senses and to draw conclusions. That is one of man's magnificent attributes. We agnostically inclined would not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach and interpretation. In other words, we search for common sense based explanations. And to tell you the truth, there isn't one. The only thing that we can do is we can do something of a forensic analysis. And in the forensic analysis of how this works, why it works, is this. The steps will give me a pushback to the demonic character defects, the destructive character defects that have triggered me into eating food against my will from the time I was a little baby. And what ultimately is happening here is that the steps are pushing back on the destructive demonic ego. And the ego is the, is the parent of these defects. What are the defects? Selfish, dishonest, resentment, and fear. Selfish, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. These and anger, sorry, and anger. I left out resentment. These are the character defects yelling at your dog, being late for work. Those are not character defects, those are behaviors that come from character defects. A character defect is not that you're late for work all the time or that you pick your nose in traffic. That is not a character defect. The, I'm kidding with the thing with the nose, but these are behaviors that come from character defects. And those character defects are brought about as a defense mechanism so that we can get what we want out of the world. If I have to lie to you, if I have to be angry, if I have to be, a, whatever it is, I'm trying to protect myself and I'm trying to extract what I can from the world around me so that my needs, my instinctual needs, what are the basic instincts of life? Social, security, and sex, so that I will be taken care of. This is why I've acted the way I've acted. Now I'm going to trust infinite God rather than my finite self. We have this illusion of control. We have an illusion of being in control. We have an illusion of being on top of things. And truthfully, nothing could be further from the truth. We never had control. We never will have control. As much as you think you're going to control the people around you, it, it's, it's an illusion. It will not help you fend off this unnatural desire to use food to make yourself feel better. It will not give you what you want. If it did, you wouldn't be here you wouldn't be one of the 145 people that are signed into this Zoom right now. You'd be out there controlling the world, getting your needs met. You wouldn't be here. You never would have come to OA because if you ruled the world, then there's no reason for you to come here. <laughs> one thing that doesn't change is the Fakakta allergies. That doesn't change. Page 53. Hence, we are at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it more sane and logical to believe than not to believe. And I'll give you my bottom line. If you've been around here, you know that I'm a bottom line guy. My way of doing things does not work. My way of coping with the world only got me fatter and fatter and more unhappy and more scared of the world, more angry, more isolated, more absolutely living in freaking hell. 
and God's way emancipated me. I was an object of ridicule. Children used to laugh at me. Adults used to laugh at me. People used to slap my ass. They would slap my stomach. They would wonder when the elephant was due. They would tell me in public places things you wouldn't tell your worst enemy. On more than one occasion, I've had people ask me, why are you so fat? On more than one occasion, I've had people take food off my table in a restaurant and I didn't even know them and give it to the busboy and say, he's morbidly obese. He doesn't need rice pudding. He's morbidly obese. He doesn't need whatever it was that I had ordered that I hadn't consumed yet. I could not walk the streets without being ridiculed by other people. I when on my first date with a girl, I was 35 years old. There is so much about dating and about relationships. I never had my comeuppance in this. I missed out on all that stuff. I was uh, with someone last Sunday and they're telling me the story about how this person liked them and passed a note and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there listening and it's a nice story. And I'm thinking to myself, this is great but this is part of what I missed out on because I have been afflicted with this disease from the day that I was born. This disease does not care what it takes from you. It doesn't care what it does to beat you down. And only a power greater than myself can be called upon to match the strength of my illness and my my illness is very very strong it's much stronger than me in the next chapter we're going to read the words remember that we deal with alcohol cunning baffling powerful without help it is too much for us that one is god may you find him now i cannot match wits with this disease this disease will tell me to eat oreo cookies it will tell me to eat pizza in the most seductive convincing way it's in my voice and my disease knows just how to enchant me to seduce me into eating why does it want me to eat because when i'm eating pizza when i'm eating candy the world is a beautiful place, but only for about nine seconds. And because I have this illness and my mental twist is coupled with its sidekick, the mental blank spot. What is the mental blank spot? The mental blank spot is the part of my brain that will eradicate any memories that I have of what I just told you about being an object of ridicule, going on my first date when I was 35 years old, being in public places and people laughing at me was the tip of the iceberg. What about the physical pain that I was in when I had to get in and out of a car? What about the physical pain that I was in when I had to walk through a grocery store? What about the shame that I felt when people that I knew that I had sworn to God to that I was going to stay on my diet caught me in the grocery store with Chips Ahoy, frozen pizza, Twinkies, Susie Q's, Hostess cupcakes and uh, uh, Sara Lee brownies in my grocery cart. Why would I do that to myself? The reason that I do that to myself is I don't know any other way of making the pain go away than to eat that food. And the food in, creates in and of itself a worse nightmare. This disease is quicksand. The more I eat, the worse I feel. The worse I feel, the more I eat. The more I eat, the worse I feel. The worse I feel, the more I eat. And this is how the disease will kill you. So food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. Now I've said that in the doctor's opinion. I've told you that in Bill's story. I've talked about it in chapter through to two, through two. I've talked about it in chapter three, but food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. And as a solution to the problem, we now have to find a substitute. So what we're essentially doing here 
is we are substituting the effect of the steps for the effect of the food, which will make us feel better a little slower, but it takes work. But the food has devastating side effects and the steps have unbelievable miracles. We are substituting something that will never work for something that always works. And we have discovered that through the use of the steps, we have eradicated in the people who take the action, any desire to destroy ourselves with food. Food was never the problem. We have compulsive eating and compulsive overeaters. Now they sound very, very similar. They sound real similar. Compulsive eating, compulsive over, compulsive overeater, they sound very, very similar, but they're worlds apart. Compulsive eating is something that even normal eaters do on occasion. You see people anywhere you go, they are eating and they're eating and they're enjoying it and they put it down and it's done. Fartik, fartik is a Yiddish word for done, fartik, done. Now, a compulsive overeater sounds very similar, but it's, as I say, worlds apart. A compulsive overeater is a person with a physical allergy to the food where there's an unnatural reaction and they have a mind that acts unnaturally also. And it's only about nine to 10% of the population that feel this disease that I cannot live in the world that I was born into without the food. It becomes a necessity. What does it say in Bill's story? Liquor ceased to be a luxury and became a necessity because I cannot handle the reality that I see. I cannot handle the people without it and even with it, I can't handle them. So the compulsive overeater must have, not should have, not could have, not might have, must have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps if they are to live free in the world. So we have to stop looking at food as the problem. If food was the problem, treatment centers would turn out winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, different medical procedures would turn out winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, jails, hospitals would turn out winners, and they don't. Because abstinence does not treat this disease. I'm going to say that again, because for many of you, when I say that, it's just shocking to you. Abstinence alone does not treat this disease. If it did, the first time you dieted down, you'd have been cured and you would never be here. You would have never darkened our door. So abstinence does not treat this disease. What did we read in chapter three? A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He remained bone dry for 25 years. He decided he was going to go back to drinking. Out came his carpet slipper and a bottle. Within four years, he was dead. He remained bone dry for 25 years. Did that cure him? No. Did it treat his disease? No. And that's why it does not say on page 45 of this chapter, the main object of this book is to get you sober. It says the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So we have to stop focusing on the abstinence as being the end result of everything we're doing. Abstinence is the key into the door, into the into the classroom. Abstinence is a bare rudimentary beginning. Abstinence is a requirement. I went to college in Chicago, Roosevelt University. 
And in Roosevelt University, if you don't pass English 101 and English 102, you can't get a degree. Can't do it. You might go to another college and get a degree, but they ain't giving you one from the college I went to without English 101 and English 102. Now, there's other requirements too, but I'm just focusing in on something to keep it simple. I had to pass English 101 and English 102 to get my college degree. Is, is that the reason I went to college is to pass English 101 and English 102? No, but I had to pass them because they were the key to get in the door. Abstinence is exactly the same thing. They are requirements and you must remain abstinent. But the most important thing here that we're going to develop, and that's why after chapter three, we don't talk about the food anymore. We are talking about your relationship with God. We're talking about your relationship with a power greater than yourself. And without that relationship with a power greater than yourself, you're not going to recover. The main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if that's the main object of this book, I would suggest you make it the main object of your life. When things come before my relationship with God, I'm going to lose them. Money, girls, whatever. I don't know what else to throw in there. That cannot come before my relationship with God. If they do, I'm going to lose them. So let's focus on what's important. And that is the spiritual angle of this. Yes, I have to work step one perfectly. It's the only step I have to work perfectly. But after I get through that, now I've got 11 other steps that need to be worked. And this step two is vital that I not see it as a destination, but as a journey. And that I will be working on step two every day for the rest of my life. How do I work on step two? By helping others by sponsoring. The most important thing I can do today to work on step two is to take seriously what it tells me at the end of Bill's story, that in order to enlarge and perfect my spiritual life, I must do it through service and self-sacrifice for others. I must work with others as my sponsors have worked with me. And that unless I'm going to do that, I'm in trouble. How many times in the last 43 years have I heard people chirping that they're not going to sponsor? You don't sponsor, you don't recover. This is a 12-step program, not an 11-step program. And it's important to be the treasurer of a group or do what Maria and Nancy J and Sue Well and I, I don't know who else, I think... Um, uh, Audrey and other people that, uh, and, and Lauren N and the people that make this work. That's great, but it's no substitute for sponsorship. Without sponsoring others constantly, I'm not going to develop the spiritual life that I need so I can recover. Very, very important to remember. Let's move forward. We say that our former thinking was soft and mushy. When we threw up our hands in doubt, we said, we don't know. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is What was our choice to be? If God is nothing, I'm in trouble. It doesn't have to be my God. It doesn't have to be someone else's God. It's whatever you perceive, whatever you want God to be, that's what God is. No one can tell you 
that it has to be the God of the Jews or the Catholics or the Protestants or the Lutherans or the Buddhists or the Muslims. No one can tell you that it has to be practiced with a black Bible or a white Bible or a cherry red Bible. No one can tell you that it's a man or a woman or a goat or a, or a, a rooster. No one can tell you that. It is up to you to decide whether it's a he or a she or an it or a them or whatever. It does not bear out that you need to be worshiping or believing in someone else's God, as long as it's a power greater than yourself. That's all that's required. You don't even have to believe. You just have to be willing to believe. You just have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. Now, as long as you're going to let me believe what I believe and how I believe, I shouldn't have a problem with that. I shouldn't have a problem with that because it's God as I understand God. You don't even have to call it God. Some people call it Holy Spirit. Some people call it great outdoors. Some people call it group of drunks. Some people call it Max or Joe or Sandy or Mary or Linda. It doesn't matter what you call it. My first higher power in this program was Lake Michigan. I used to drive Lakeshore Drive in Chicago every morning. And when you go downtown from the north side, she's on your left. And when you come home, you go north, she's on your right. And sometimes, not now, but in another month, when it gets to be November, she's violent. She can be violent. Those waves, they get to be five, six, 10, 15 feet high when that wind comes out of the east. And sometimes they have to close down parts of Lakeshore Drive because it, the water is just coming over. And sometimes she's just as passive as passive can be. But what I noticed about Lake Michigan is she doesn't care if I have a crush on a girl that doesn't love me back. She doesn't care about money. She doesn't care about politics. She doesn't care about all these various things that as human beings, I think are so important. She just doesn't seem to give a damn. And I admired that. And no matter what was bothering me, I could pull off on Montrose Avenue or Foster Avenue and drive right up and just look at her and smell it. When you're that close, you can smell, the, you can feel the lake. If you've never seen her, she's huge. If you have a vision of a lake that you could sort of paddle across in a day or something, no, that's, that's not what this is. She's 319 miles long. She's 196 miles wide. She is not, she's an inland sea. She's not something where you can see, hey, there's Fred on the other side. Hey, Fred. You, no, that's not what we're looking at here. We're looking at an inland sea. And we're looking at something that you cannot see across. There's ocean going vessels on the bottom. So that was my first higher power. Start somewhere, but surrender to this fact because I've never spoken anything to you more true than this. Without a willingness to believe that a power greater than yourself is around, you will not recover. I'm going to say that again because it's pretty damn important. Without a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than you. I didn't say belief. I said willingness to believe. You will not recover. Not going to happen. And you have to work at that belief every day of your life as you've never worked at anything before. Because with this, everything is possible. Without it, nothing becomes possible because the disease will take you out. You think you're smart? You think you're strong? Maybe you got a PhD. 
Maybe you're smart. Maybe you're a great salesperson. Maybe you're gorgeous. Maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe you're black. Maybe you're white. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're old. I don't know. I don't care. But no matter who you are, this disease is stronger than you. It's more cunning than you. It's more powerful than you. It's more devastating than you. You must have a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, which will restore you to sanity. Let's continue. I'm on page 53. Arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason. Notice that bridge of reason is capitalized because so many of us worship science. Now, I'm not knocking science. Please don't send me text messages. Don't send text messages to the Los Angeles intergroup that I'm saying I, I'm, I'm not knocking science. What I'm saying here is science cannot relieve you of this illness. Not yet. When I was nine years old, nine years old, when I get up to heaven, I've got some issues with Dr. Jacobson. I'm going to talk to him too. But when I was nine years old, I was loaded on amphetamines. I was given very high doses of speed to knock out my appetite. And it did the trick. Let me tell you, I didn't eat. No way was I eating any food. I lost a ton of weight. Then when I, Marilyn Monroe died in 1962, I was put on these pills in 63. But by 63 and 64, some of the Marilyn Monroe forensics were coming back across the country that she died because of these amphetamines. And some of these amphetamines were getting criticized. So what they simply did was they switched seats on the Titanic and they took me off the pink pills and put me on blue pills. And I was sitting instead of I was in over here on the Lido deck on the Titanic. I was over here on the Saturn deck of the Titanic sunning myself. But we were doomed from the beginning. And those amphetamines did nasty things to my brain. You sleep about 20 minutes a month. Um, I'm getting into fist fights at school. I'm an eater. I am not a fighter. I am not a violent man. I'm getting in fist fights every day at school. My mother and father are getting called into the school. The teachers didn't know to connect the dots. My mother and father didn't know to connect the dots. All my mother and father were gloriously happy about is I wasn't eating a six pound salami every day or two. All they were happy about was I was losing weight. I'm getting into fights. I can't hear what the hell people are saying to me. It sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Bonk, 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 bonk. And I get accused of this now. I'm saying the same thing like 300 times. I'm, I'm speeding my brains out. I can't sit still anyway. So now I'm like a jitterbox. I was nine years old. When I get up to heaven, I have some issues with this doctor. Like, come on, doctor, what the hell were you thinking? Man, I was nine years old. Gee, fuckers, man. Just leave me eat and let me be fat for a couple more years and then load me up on the drugs. But those pills didn't cure me. That's the point I'm trying to make. Those pills didn't cure me. They killed my appetite but they didn't cure what was going on in my head. And that was, I was feeling these feelings, knowing that food would take those feelings and make a sad song better. M&Ms did for me what nothing else could do. And it made the anger, the fear, the selfishness, the shame, the guilt, the remorse go away for about nine to 10 seconds. And I needed that. And I still do. But I substitute the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps 
for the magical effect of the pizza that I ate on Devon Avenue throughout my life. Let's continue. The outlines and the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. We were grateful that reason, reason is capitalized. Many of us believe in it had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been leaning too heavily on reason that last mile, and we did not like to lose our support. Abandon all hope of anything that is of this earth that is going to interdict to circumvent your disease. That's so key. I'm going to say it again. Abandon all hope permanently that anything that is of this earth is going to interdict, to interfere with, to circumvent the actions of your disease. It's not going to happen. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. And yet many of us will search for that to the gates of insanity or death. Many will die in search of relief from the untenable pain that this disease creates. And we will look for it in the wrong places, even though we know now where the solution is. Our egos will tell us, you've done enough. You don't have to do any more. You've done enough. Let somebody else sponsor these people. You've done enough. Let someone else do this. You don't have to do 10 steps anymore. You've done enough of them. You don't have to do step 11 in the morning and step 11 at night. You don't have to sponsor. You don't have to do that. Just throw out a prayer every once in a while. That's not going to cut it. You have to work at this for the rest of your life. One of the things that makes me cringe is somebody will come to our Scottsdale meetings and I can see their faces on Zoom and they say, I worked the steps a few years ago and I just, I don't understand why I went back to the food. Well, you can't work the steps. You are either working them or you're not working them. There's no past tense here that's going to work. You have to know that the working of the steps is something of a continuum flow. Number of years ago, I have permission to use her name. Her name is Naomi, lovely, lovely woman. I was doing a workshop like the one I'm going to be doing in White Plains, New York, and the one I did in Los Angeles. I've done a lot of them. I've done them in Israel. I've done them all over. But um, I was doing one in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. A woman comes up to me, her name is Naomi. We're just about to break for lunch. And she says, may I call you after I'm done with the steps? And I said, no. And she looked at me like I was the purple people eater or Herman Munster or something. And I, she says, why not? And I says, because when you're done working the steps, you're going to be dead and there's no phone in the box. And she looked at me and I had lunch with her and others and I explained to her why I answered her the way I answered her. And we talk every once in a while. I know she's on vision all the time and stuff. I love her to death and, and we have a good relationship. But uh, in 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 10, we practice. Uh, it's 12, we practice. 10, 11, and 12 every day for the rest of your life. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. In 12, we practice. Let's do another paragraph and then we'll wrap it up for today. Or two. This was, that was natural. I'm at the bottom of 53. That was natural, but let us think a little more closely without knowing it. Had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? For did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? I know for a fact. I know this to be fact. There's at least three PhDs on this line right now. I know for a fact. There are nurses. I know that there are lawyers. 
I know that there are very, very polished professional people that are listening. And one of the things that can kill me is this idea that because I have been so successful in other areas of my life, that somehow I'm going to figure this out. Divorce yourself from that thinking immediately because it will kill you. It will kill you. You will never figure this out. So what is the theme of today? What is What am I trying to get across today? Over and over and over in different words, I've made this point that a human being of their own accord cannot overcome the absolute power of this disease. The power of this disease will overwhelm you and eating will make it will seem like the most natural choice in the world because the disease is seductive, patient, powerful, effective, and it is a killing machine. And these ideas to eat Tootsie Rolls, these ideas to eat Sara Lee brownies will come to you when you least expect it and need to hear that the most because the disease is, the timing is perfect. And only, only a spiritual awakening will negate its effect. Let's continue. What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we had been faithful, abjectly faithful to the God of reason, science, math, which I hate, science, math, logic. This is what we want to believe in. So I can take you into a classroom and prove to you that two and two is four. I hope it's two and two, four. Yeah, I think so. Um, but the bottom line is, is that I want to take you and prove to you that this is the story. We can't do it. I can't show you God, but I can show you thousands of people who are gutter compulsive overeaters, gutter anorexics, gutter bulimics that are in recovery today. I have a friend of mine that lives in Colorado. I love her. She is my friend. I adore her. I would die for her. And every morning that we're at the birthday, she piles people in and they go out to Santa Monica and they go to the beach in Santa Monica. She's going to do it. She'll be there. And they all go out to Santa Monica and Charles goes and she goes and they all go. And they come back to the lobby of the Hilton and they say, what a miracle. We saw the sun coming up over the ocean and we did the step 11 the morning on the beach and what a miracle and the birds and the waves. And those are beautiful, beautiful things. But we define miracle as something which defies logic or scientific proof. The miracle in LA and the miracle wherever you live is that there are going to be 2,000 compulsive overeaters in Los Angeles. And some of them in that lobby are going to be emancipated from their desire to destroy themselves with food or destroy themselves with starvation through no logical explanation other than the working of these steps. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. Don't miss the birthday. Let's continue. Let's finish this paragraph and then I'll turn it over to Veronica. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We believe in science. Many of us believed in money. Many of us believed in other people. Many of us believe in other things that are of this earth. They will not help you. They will not help you. They cannot help you. And you are going to need the help of a power greater than yourself. Now, before I turn this over to Veronica, uh, I'm going to write this down. Page 54, we found two. Okay. 
Now, next week, I'll be doing this from Nashville, Tennessee on my phone. So I'll be in Nashville at a, at a destination wedding. I've never been to Nashville before. Um, I hope it's nice there. I hope it's not freezing cold. But anyway, I doubt it. But anyway, um, before we turn it over, I just want to say, if you asked a question last week, please step back and let people who didn't come forward. No math, please, for the love of God, no math. And for the love of God, no food questions, please. I am not a nutritionist, nor do I play one on TV. So whether you are whatever, no math, no food, let some other people come to the forefront. And I'm going to turn it over to Veronica C., my friend in our Scottsdale meetings. Veronica, where are you? I'm right here, right here, All Harlan. Right. All right. <laughs> Veronica is on. I have to change my background. Now, the yes. Ducks play today, but I have to make it Archie and Veronica yeah. in her honor. So yeah. I have Archie and Veronica kissing me. Okay. <laughs> just, don't right. call me, just don't call me Ronnie, and we're going to be fine. Okay. okay, you don't like you don't like Ronnie. All right. I've never liked it. I Nika is a nickname for me, but Ronnie, no. Nika. Okay. I don't get yeah. Nika. How does Nika come to Veronica? N-I-C-A. N-I-C-A. Yeah. Annika. Oh, okay. I get it now. I get it. Okay. All right. All right. We're okay. at the um I, Maria, did you need to say something first? No, no, no. You go ahead, Veronica. Okay. We just have Terrific. a question in the chat box, a couple of questions in the chat box, but I'll bounce them over to you. You go ahead. Okay, um, so this is the Q&A part of the presentation with Harlan. And at this time, you could uh, raise your hand and we will answer any questions. Harlan will answer any questions that you might have before he takes off to PETA Jungle, I believe. So we wanna- I'll be there by myself today. All my, all my lunch partners are